Dear friends of Jesus Christ, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to play in a wavy ocean or lake before. It's such great fun. When I was young, I body surfed a lot in Lake Huron, and what an, a, an exhilarating feeling it is uh, to feel, to, to hit a wave just right and to feel its power wash over you. I still love to body surf. Waves are so much fun, but they can be uh, dangerous too. You have to watch out for undertow currents that can suck you out much further than you'd like to go. In addition to that, waves rarely hit the shore at a uh, on a 90 degree angle. They usually tilt to the left or they tilt to the right, depending which way the wind is blowing or the currents are flowing. And that means that they can slowly take you to the left or to the right. You barely feel it when you're in the water. The drift only becomes noticeable when you look back at the shore and you see just how far you've strayed from your parents' lawn chairs. More than once, my mom had to come out into the water to pull us back so that we'd be closer to home base on the beach. And as we got older, she would wave and yell at us from the shore, come back, come back. And I was, as I was thinking about that, playing in the water, playing in the waves, it struck me that life in this world is really not all different from a wavy day in the water. The subtle forces of culture and advertising, peers and trends, they impact us. They work on our imaginations, they form our desires. And if we're not careful, these things can cause us to drift pretty far off course. The book of Kings tells the story of Israel's drift as a nation. It describes how Israel goes from, goes from being a God-worshipping nation under the most, mostly faithful leadership of King David and Solomon to being a Baal-worshipping nation under the rebellious leadership of Omri and Ahab and others like them. And it's a tragic story, really, one that ultimately ends in undertow for God's people. The Lord calls to Israel from the shore. He speaks to them through the prophets. Come back, come back. But they don't listen. This fall, we're going to take a deep dive into the story that sits in the middle of this larger narrative. The story of Elijah. Elijah was a prophet that God raised up in Israel. God used him to confront King Ahab and the idolatry that, ha that Ahab had solidified in the northern kingdom. And as we engage this story, we'll be gleaning wisdom that I hope will encourage us to remain faithful to God, rooted in Christ, in a culture that promotes the worship of self. In order to understand God, uh, why God needed to call Elijah and why God sent Elijah to confront Ahab, First, we have to understand a little bit about the political situation in northern Israel. If you're familiar with the history, you'll know that um, the kingdom of Israel has already divided into two. Rehoboam and Jeroboam both wanted Solomon's throne. This power struggle ended with a split. The ten tribes of the north became Israel, and the two tribes to the south became Judah. Ahab was the seventh king 
in the northern kingdom. So we're in the, we're in the north now. Ahab was son of Omri. Omri was the sixth king in the northern kingdom of Israel. Before becoming king, he was a general in Elah's army. But Elah, the fourth king, was a drinker. And he was murdered, murdered by Zimri, the fifth king, during one of Elah's parties. Zimri's first order of business as king was to kill off all of Elah's relatives. That way he wouldn't have anyone challenge him for the throne. But when the army heard of Zimri's coup d'etat, they declared Omri king and marched on Terzah, where Zimri was located. Zimri committed suicide when he saw that he couldn't win. His rule as the fifth king lasted only seven days. After a skirmish with another wannabe king named Tibni, Omri became the undisputed king of northern Israel. Needless to say, Ahab didn't have very many God-fearing mentors or role models in his life. Things are not how they are supposed to be in the promised land. There's no fear of the Lord here, just the chaos caused by endless power struggles. From a worldly perspective, Omri was a very successful king. He brought stability. He built a capital city. He held on to power for 12 years without getting murdered in the process. And then he successfully handed his power over to his son, Ahab. So from a worldly perspective, Omri was successful. But from a covenant perspective, the author of the book of Kings gives us another perspective. Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. Ahab inherited uh, his father's throne and reigned in northern Israel for 22 years. Not only did he reign almost twice as long as his father, but he committed basically twice as many sins too. And he considered all this to be trivial, the text says. Trivial, meaning light, insignificant, no big deal. Idolatry, what's that? Who cares? No one cares about those antiquated laws anymore. The Sidonians are worshipping Baal and it seems to be working out for them. In fact, it would do me a world of good, political spe politically speaking, to get me a Baal-worshipping wife and make a temple in Baal's honor. And while we're at it, me and my new wife Jezebel will set up some Asherah poles too, just for good luck. Ahab considered all this to be trivial, nothing, shrug of the shoulders, who cares? Perhaps Omri hadn't taught his son to read his royal copy of the Ten Commandments. The first commandment is this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And then the second command, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. But Ahab considers all this to be trivial, 
six generations of drift has resulted in him having a calloused conscience towards the things of God. You know, one of the things I, I hear, especially as I talk to um, the elderly people in our church, is just the vast scope of change. Uh, technology has changed, cultural values have changed, and people talk about a lot of change in the church, too. We used to read the Ten Commandments every week, all dressed up in our Sunday best. We used to re refer to God using these and thous. No one would dare shop on a Sunday, a Sunday or cut the lawn. Movies were anathema. But my, how things have changed. Now we rarely read the law, and the pastor sometimes doesn't even tuck his shirt in. And one of them is a woman. Just about everyone watches the odd movie now and again, and it's no big deal to pop over to Savon on a Sunday afternoon. Some of you are thankful for all these changes, happy to put some distance between you and your rigid upbringing. But others of you worry that maybe something is being lost in this time of change. And it feels to you like we're starting to drift. When I was a boy, no one let their children join a sports team if that team happened to place, play on Sunday mornings. And I was the first child in my church to join a travel baseball team, which occasionally played on Sundays. My parents were super torn about it. They saw me in my growing baseball skills, but they also had this deep commitment to worshiping the Lord on Sunday with the gathered body of Christ. So they decided I could play, but whenever I played on Sunday for a tournament, they made sure that I was in church in the, for the evening service when we used to have evening services. Sometimes I'd even show up in my baseball uniform, all dirty and sweaty from the day, and pretty much conk out on the pew during the sermon. But I was there. It was a big deal. It felt like a big deal then for them to allow me to play baseball on Sunday. But today, today this seems trivial, insignificant. Nothing. What's to talk about? Now we could talk for a while this morning about all these things, about children and sports, about Sunday morning worship, about shopping, about working on Sunday, uh, about the Ten Commandments, all these different things. We could talk about them. And obviously having your butt in the pew on Sunday morning is not the be-all, end-all of the life of faith. And yet, our relationship with God is not trivial business. What about family devotions, our personal time to connect with God, reading his word? As we're losing all these other things, sometimes I think we're losing this as well. And what about setting aside time and making it a priority to worship God with others who love him and are consciously choosing to live their life under his word. 
I was talking to a colleague recently who received just a two-line email from someone in his church community, someone he had mentored for a couple years, said, I'm, my family's taking a break, we're, we're, we're done for a while. We still believe we're just not going to be part of a church community anymore. Idols, you see, are rarely generated overnight. But over time, without working to intentionally fight the drift, a few generations later, who knows how far from the center we could be. The Lord's covenant with his people is not something to just, whatever, shrug your shoulders. It's not trivial, and Ahab has made it trivial. Baal was known as the storm god in Ahab's time, the bringer of rain. Worshipping the storm god may seem strange to us modern folks, but it made complete sense to the agrarian folks who lived in the ancient Near East. They lived off the land. No rain meant no crops. No crops meant no food. No food meant death. So of course you're going to try to please the one who is believed to bring the rain. And the cult of Asherah had a similar focus on fertility. I'm trying, I was trying to research all this. It's actually, it's kind of fuzzy, but one of the people I, uh, I read uh, talked about the cult of Asherah being connected to a woman's fertility. Um, so you can see the temptation to go searching for help from Baal and Asherah. Together they held out the promise of food security and family security. People wanted more of that, so they started to worship Baal. And who doesn't want more of that? Of course, we don't worship Baal and Asherah anymore in our times, but man, oh man, are we still ever tempted to organize our lives around and bow our knee to that which will give us more food and better family. An idol is simply a person, place, or thing other than God that you trust to give you the good life. An idol is anything other than the Lord that you look to for ultimate comfort and strength. You know, question and answer one of the catechism, which we sang earlier. I am not my own, but belong body and soul, life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's my comfort and strength in life and in death. Your idol is whatever you put in there other than Jesus Christ, right? So... Ice cream is my only comfort in life and in death. Pleasure, my only comfort in life and in death. Having a big bank account, my only comfort in life and in death. The respect of my peers, my only comfort in life and in death. Big grades, high grades, getting into a good university. The respect of my professors. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That's your idol. It's whatever has your heart. Some shiny object in creation other than God that has your heart. The trouble with idols is that though they promise the world, they can't deliver the goods. And they usually end up stealing joy instead of giving it. And the Lord, as he brought his people out of Egypt, 
He wants them to thrive in this relationship with him and, and to put him front and center in their life because he, he can give them the deepest joy that their hearts long for. And so he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Put me first and I will fill you. But Ahab has moved on from this old-fashioned way of thinking. The full extent of Ahab's, Ahab's rebellion, I think, is on display in his attempt with Heel to rebuild the walls of Jericho. Jericho, you might remember a thing or two about this city. Jericho is the first city that the Lord gave to the people of Israel in the conquest of Canaan. And Israel did not fire a shot in that battle. All they had to do was walk around the city, trusting that God would give them the victory. And on the seventh day, they walked around the city seven times. And with a shout, the walls of Jericho came crumbling down. Joshua proclaimed the word of the Lord at the end of the battle. He said this, Curse before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. And at the cost of his youngest son, he will set up its gates. Why, I wonder, did the Lord uh, uh, forbid people to rebuild these walls? I mean, Ahab clearly thought this was a good idea. So did Heel, the architect. Jericho was a strategic city that sat on a strategic um, trade route, and right across the Jordan River on the other side with this, was this growing kingdom of Moab. So from a king perspective, you've got to start fortifying this place before Moab comes in, and to fortify the, this place so that you can tax all the merchants who are traveling through. But the Lord didn't want the walls to be rebuilt. Why? The answer is because those toppled stones were a testimony to his victory over the Canaanites. Joshua didn't win or fight the battle of Jericho. The Lord did. And those broken walls declared that message. They declared the toppled walls were a a monument to the Lord's greatness and goodness. Everyone who'd walked by, the walls declared to them, The Lord is powerful. He is great. They were a constant reminder to Israel to not put their trust in walls, but to trust the Lord. But Ahab, he's beyond all this trust in the Lord business. And what he craves is the security that walls can provide You'll notice that the Lord is pretty quiet in 1 Kings 16. And at a certain point, one starts to wonder if maybe all this rebellion is trivial to him. Does he not see Omri's sinful ways? Does he not care that Ahab has built up a temple for Baal? The text doesn't give us a window into God's mind, but what it does reveal is telling Notice what happens to Heel's children. In Ahab's time, the text says, Heel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub. 
in accordance with the word of the Lord, spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Do you see it? Do you see the Lord working in this subtle way? Do you see that his word will not be nullified by the disobedience or rebellion of supposedly powerful kings? Ahab and Heel may have succeeded in breaking God's commands, but they suffered the curses of breaking God's word. The wages of Heel's sin was the death of all of his children. And that happened in accordance with the word of the Lord. This is our first sign in the story of Elijah that God is taking note of what's happening in Israel. I wonder how he will respond to Ahab's blatant idolatry. Stay tuned to find out. In the meantime, I think this text gives us plenty to ponder in our life with God and the covenant relationship that we have with him. I hope it causes us to think about some of the ways that we might be drifting away from the center. Now may be the time to correct course. Or maybe there is some person, place, or thing other than God that is beginning to take up more and more space in your heart. I wonder if that thing were allowed to grow, where would you be in three to five years? Or three to five generations from now, where will that lead if left unchecked? But mostly I think this text invites us to humble ourselves, to remember who the Lord is, and to remember who we are. This is not my world. This is not my life. This is not your world. This is not your life alone. You are not your own. You were created by God. God is. And God cares what happens in the world. As we humble ourselves, we begin to remember to properly fear the Lord and to not make trivial our life in this world. The other day I was speeding down the highway, going much too fast, and as I turned a corner I noticed a police officer in the distance. I gasped and immediately began to brake as fast as I could in a way that would draw as little attention as possible. You've ever done that before? It's a delicate art. It's not that I'm afraid of police officers. I don't fear them. I don't shake before them or anything like that. But I know that they have authority over me and have the right to exercise that authority should they see fit. And I think to live in fear of the Lord is to know yourself to be living in God's world before the face of God. And it should cause you to gasp every now and then because life is not trivial. Not at all.
Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. In addition to humbling ourselves before the Lord, I think this text also calls us back to faith. To trust that the God who is over all is for us, and that his purposes in the world will not be thwarted. Ahab's biggest sin in this text was not building a temple for Baal. His biggest sin was forgetting about God's victory in Jericho. The toppled walls of Jericho were a testimony of God's judgment of sin, of God's victory over the enemy. God did not want the walls to be rebuilt because he wanted his name to be feared by the nations and to be revered by the Jews. Israel was not to put their trust in walls, but to trust in the Lord, who is their God. God for us. He had forgotten about God's power, God's special relationship with his people. And it strikes me that today, to return to the story of God's victory over sin and death through the cross through the empty tomb, to not try to cover that over or pretend like it didn't happen, but to trust, trust that God is for us and that his victory will will come to be in this world. We live by faith in his finished work, trusting that he will complete what he started. Amen. Amen.